You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For February 21st, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In the early stages of energy transition, most of the focus was on decarbonizing grid power by switching from fossil fuel generators to wind and solar, which do not create carbon emissions. And this made sense. In the U.S., the electric power sector was the largest source of carbon emissions for as far back as emissions data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration goes to 1998. But energy transition has been underway for over a decade now, and that is no longer the case. Thanks to increasing electricity production from clean renewables and to replace oil and coal generators with cleaner burning natural gas generators, emissions from the power sector in the U.S. have sharply declined since 2009. And as of 2016, it is a transportation sector, not power generation, that produces the most emissions. So now we have to proceed from merely getting most of our electricity from carbon-free sources to what's called deep decarbonization, switching most of our energy needs over to carbon-free sources, including transportation and space heating, which essentially means switching over everything to clean electricity. And that is considerably harder to do, because instead of just replacing a few hundred power plants, it means replacing millions of vehicles and heating systems, while continuing to decarbonize the power sector so that all of the newly electrified systems are running on clean electricity. And the deep decarbonization challenge is actually even harder than it sounds. Because although we are finally making progress on electric vehicles of all types, from passenger cars to city buses and heavy equipment, we don't know if it's even possible that we could ever run passenger aircraft or ocean-going shipping on electricity. It's expensive to replace heating systems that are built into buildings, and the very best electric space heating options can be impractical, as we learned in our discussion with Robert Bean in episode 53. And then, even if we could switch all the loads to electricity, we'll still need to beef up the entire power grid to handle the new loads, adding more generation, transmission, and distribution capacity, and we'll need to do a better job of optimizing the grid so that its components are highly utilized and the systems don't need as much idle excess capacity. It's a tall order, and the solution set will vary from place to place. But various countries are now beginning to figure out what their best pathways are and to publish their models, and we can now begin to estimate the magnitude of the challenge as well as some of the challenges that we'll likely encounter along the way, including everyone's favorite question, how much storage we'll need, and what type. Fortunately, our guest today has been looking into these questions for years and can help us understand what the dimensions of the problems and the solutions are. McKay Miller explored these questions when he was at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory a few years ago, and he continues to explore them today. And if that name sounds familiar, it should, because he was our guest in the second episode of this podcast. So it's a treat to have him back on the show. Then in the news segment, we'll look at the first pilot project investments into vehicle electrification approved for California utilities, a new winter 
to record demand for power in Texas, newly announced retirements of coal plants in Virginia, and the ever-shrinking outlook for coal in India. But first, our conversation with McKay Miller, recorded January 18th, 2018. So let's bring him back to the conversation now. Welcome back to the Energy Transition Show, McKay. Hi, thanks, Chris. So you're on a considerably different beat now than you were when we first had you on the show way back in episode two. Back then in August 2015, you were still at NREL down the road from me here in Golden, Colorado. Now you're on the East Coast working at National Grid, a large utility, but you're appearing on the show in a personal capacity, correct? Yes, that's right. I'm out in the cold Northeast, just outside of Boston. <laughs> okay. Well, I wanted to have you back on the show because you've been doing what I think is some pretty interesting research into how we're going to accomplish deep decarbonization. In other words, change our uses of energy so that we're relying on clean electricity powered presumably by renewables or other clean sources to do the jobs that are currently being done by fossil fuels, including transportation and space heating. For one example, a 2012 study by Williams et al., which modeled how to decarbonize California, found that meeting the state's targets for deep reductions in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 would take more than just decarbonizing electricity by switching power generation over to renewables. It would also take widespread electrification of transportation and other sectors, and we would probably require technologies that are not yet commercial. So they modeled what more we could accomplish with energy efficiency, smart growth policy to reduce vehicle traffic, rooftop solar PV, biofuels, reducing emissions from industrial processes like agriculture, and making cement. Would you say that that's a pretty good model for other places to follow as they try to understand how to undertake their own deep decarbonization efforts? Yeah, Williams and the team at E3 have done a really good job of expanding energy sector modeling beyond the traditional power sector only view. They haven't really gone to look at all of the sources of GHG emissions, uh, so they don't typically look at agriculture or land use, some of the other sources and sinks, but they really do a good job of broadening out the, the modeling lens to include all of the sectors of energy. And I think that their methods have begun to really shift the way that people think about the energy transition. And they're known for the sort of multi-sector bottom-up stock turnover-based modeling that starts to get at the real question, which is how do you build an entire energy system and an entire economy that is low carbon? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, is there another way that we should think about deep decarbonization modeling, or is that a pretty good mental paradigm as we proceed into this conversation? That's the, the sort of really useful frame that I've been thinking about things through recently, that whole energy system view, not to say that land use and food production and everything else isn't important, and there are folks looking at that, but just from an energy system planning point of view, this is a really useful frame. Yeah, okay. So there are various ways that one could imagine getting from here to there. As it turns out, there are several projects underway to explore those. Internationally, there is the Deep Decarbonization Pathways Project. There is a pathways methodology that, as you mentioned, E3, the energy consultancy used in that study to model California. And the RESOM, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, methodology used by Beringa to model the UK. Then there's the big electrification future study being done by your former colleagues over at NREL, which just launched its first report, 
end-use electric technology cost and performance projections. That'll be kind of the groundwork report, I think, and what'll probably be a series of reports there from NREL. And then there is the Windless Winter Weeks study that Case Vanderloon, our guest from episode 34, published at ECOFIS shortly after we produced that episode, actually, about a year ago. And that study looked at how electricity systems that are largely powered by wind, like Denmark and increasingly Netherlands, might actually get through several cold winter weeks in a row if the wind didn't blow and they were relying on electricity for space heating. So there are several interesting projects and studies out there looking at ways that we might transition to renewably powered societies. So having explored many of these studies and ideas, what's your takeaway? I mean, are there interesting commonalities to these studies or do they demonstrate how different the pathways might be from place to place? Right. They do pursue different methodological approaches, not dramatically different, but they have interestingly landed on some pretty common themes, the types of transitions and questions that seem to be common, regardless of the methodology you take. So um, the Baringa model in the UK is called RESM. They've been working with a lot of stakeholders in the UK government, including National Grid UK, to think about an economy-wide transition the pathways model by E3, which now is run both by the E3 group, but also by Evolved Energy, which has spun off and is working with NREL on the Electrification Futures Study. So across all of those different groups doing this modeling, there does seem to be a common set of transitions, sort of four transitions that appear necessary to get to a low carbon economy. The first, energy efficiency and conservation. There's a very large degree of efficiency in all of the scenarios. The second is decarbonizing electricity, as you said earlier, through renewables, nuclear, carbon capture and storage, depending very much on the jurisdiction where you're operating. The third is fuel switching, effectively moving end uses over to either electricity as a low carbon energy carrier or hydrogen, other sorts of energy carriers. And then fourthly, an effort to decarbonize existing fuels. So that's could be biofuels, could be biogas, etc. The precise level of each of those really depends on, again, just as we talked about two years ago, depends a lot on your local context, etc. But those four transitions do seem to be pretty common across all of the all of the studies we've looked at. To the extent oh. you really try to engage electricity to be the main fuel switching route, then obviously you start to have some really, really interesting interactions with electricity decarbonization efforts, interesting interactions with energy efficiency, you know, will electricity growth outstrip efficiency efforts, et cetera, and will you sort of flip into a load growth regime? So a lot of interesting interplay, which we're really just starting to get our hands around. What are some interesting differences between these different places and pathways that they might look at? So I think you've got a really interesting difference. You know, there are similarities in climate that make folks looking at the UK and the Northeast US and to some extent Germany and other parts of sort of Northern Europe fairly similar. So really, if you're a heating dominated climate from a primary energy point of view, then you've got sort of a different set of questions and concerns compared to a cooling-dominated climate. That climate difference does show up mainly in the heating sector, but that 
isn't to say it doesn't also impact transportation. A very highly electrified fleet is likely to require more electricity to charge when it's 20 or 10 or even zero degrees Fahrenheit out. So there are climatological feedback loops in electricity supply for a very high EV fleet. So those climatological differences are pretty interesting to look at. And I'd say the second big one is, you know, what is the existing stock? You've got power generation stock in France that's largely nuclear and some renewables. Similarly, Quebec has really essentially a lower zero carbon electric generating fleet. But they've also got this massive stock of electric resistance heating out in the building stock. So you've got these massive electrical loads in the winter. Those are severely winter peaking systems. And whether or not they transition or not, and whether or not their systems can accommodate a fully electric transportation fleet, then is going to depend critically on whether they can either reduce the demands of the heating sector or add a bunch of new incremental electric generation capacity. So, yeah. yeah, that's a really interesting thing where, you know, the heating loads and the transportation loads intersect. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. You're reminding me now that sometime in the last, I think, day or two, didn't you tweet out a an older set of charts from, I don't know, DOE or NREL or somebody, which showed how electrification of heating in different parts of the U.S., different regions, has changed over time. Yeah, EIA data. It's a really nice chart. I like the way that they did it. Theoretically, there's going to be a refresh of that. It comes from the Residential Energy Customer Survey, I think it's called, REX. So that's due out sometime in calendar year 18. The trends of the types of heating fuels that folks use around the country are really interesting to watch. And I think it'll be interesting to see what has happened since that data last got refreshed, which is now five years old. So it's a little bit mm-hmm. stale. Yeah. But it also makes me want to see that type of data for different parts of Canada, different parts of Europe, different sure. parts of China, right? I think there are interesting transitions happening there that don't typically get captured in in the types of data that gets reported out. The data reporting around the world is still so centered on electricity generation. There's a big need for improving the data that we have around heating choices. Yeah, well, frankly, (laughs) that was one of the questions that popped into my head as I was looking at that chart. I was like, wait a minute, where are they getting this data? Like, is somebody actually out there counting all the space heating systems in every building? Yeah, there's a statistical sampling survey that they do. So again, you're always going to have larger error bars around this data than you will around electricity generation capacity, which has to register. And, you know, you've got very precise data. Very precise generation. So you're always going to have a bit of uncertainty. And it takes a lot of work. It it takes funding, right? So I have to imagine some of the funding for that is under scrutiny right now. So... (laughs) Oh, God. Let's not talk about that this time. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things that I remember seeing in that chart is there was one region, I don't remember which it was, that hardly seemed to have any electrical heating going on. Well, you've got a lot of regions where electricity has been historically pretty expensive. And the only region of the U.S. where you see a lot sort of predominance of electric heating is the southeast and, you know, dominated by low-cost electricity light heating loads. So when it comes time to put a system in your house and it only costs $1,000 to put electric resistance in, 
or you could pay six grand for a, a high efficiency gas furnace. Mm. You're going to take the lower first cost system and especially when electricity is eight cents a kilowatt hour. Right. So those are the conditions prevailing in the South and Southeast. But electric heat really has not been a popular choice. There were experiments with it in the 1970s here in the Northeast when the, after the OPEC shocks. And at that time, a lot of people were using fuel oil to heat their homes. And all of a sudden that just got extremely expensive. So a lot of customers switched in the 1970s across New England and, and New York to electric resistance. And then they sort of got bitten by that in the 1980s when electricity prices started to rise. And then switched over to gas, many of them. Yeah. Although you still got states like Maine and Vermont that there's only about 20% of the population connected to gas mains. So a lot of folks still burning oil and wood. Wow. Interesting. So Identifying these pathways to deep decarbonization is sort of one thing, but actually doing it is another. Are any countries actually on track now to meet their deep decarbonization goals? And if not, what are the barriers? I mean, are there technical and system planning challenges, or are they policy and regulatory challenges, or just the challenges involved in getting customers to adopt different technologies, or what? I know the the situation in the Northeast U.S. a little better than others. And when I say Northeast U.S., I'm basically using shorthand for New York and the six New England states. So the Northeast has made pretty good progress since 1990. And all the states in our region, similar to California and the West Coast states, have an 80% target. And that's 80% economy-wide emissions reduction based on a 1990 emissions level. So that 80% by 2050 The Northeast is about 16% below 1990 levels right now. At the current pace, we're going to hit about a 40% reduction by 2050. So we would almost hit half of our target. So that begins to sharpen the problem a little bit. We're just not achieving the annual pace of reductions needed. California is in a fairly similar situation. California is actually still slightly above its 1990 emissions levels. So they've got a slightly steeper path to go to hit their 80% targets. The European countries are also sort of just about on track, probably doing a little bit better than the Northeast and California. But again, I'd say across all these jurisdictions, this sort of vanguard jurisdictions who have set these targets and have really started to reorient their markets and policy toward it, a lot of the low-hanging fruit is gone. So what you're starting to see is the transition will start to need to move into transportation very assertively, and it will need to move into the types of heating choices that folks make. And that's just a different policy regime, right? Electricity policy is a little bit more straightforward. You've got regulatory processes and clear policy levers you can pull. So to your question of what the biggest barriers are, I'd say that, yes, there are big policy and regulatory barriers, some technology barriers. It seems to me that customer adoption and the rate of customer adoption is the single largest barrier. You just don't hit any of these targets without a sort of unprecedented sea change in the types of decisions that folks make around the cars they buy and what they do with their homes regarding insulation, energy efficiency, and heating systems. And that's just a whole other can of worms. 
Well, of course, there's different types of challenges and barriers are not unrelated, right? I mean, you can certainly affect the rate of customer adoption by implementing favorable policies, right? Mm -hmm. Giving appropriate incentives or just, you know, prohibiting the use of unfavorable technologies. I mean, we're certainly seeing some indications of that now, right? With, you know, various European countries and even California discussing the possibility of outlawing, you know, internal combustion vehicles at some point in the future. So Yeah, that's a really big change. We've just started to see that in the past 12 to 18 months yeah, is a more assertive look at trying to provide a long-range market transformation signal to the automotive industry about what their sort of decisions should look like heading out to 2040, 2050. And that's, I would say that's a recognition of this climate math that so much of the electric sector transition seems to be underway, but until really a year or two ago, it just hadn't been nearly as much movement in transportation. You know, for example, here in the Northeast, we're still at or above 1990 levels in the transportation sector. So Hmm. while we've cut emissions from the power sector almost in half since 1990, we are at or above the same levels of emissions in the transportation sector. Wow. Well, you know, it's a sobering realization, isn't it? I mean, even though our fuel economy of our vehicles has consistently gone up, well, fairly consistently. (laughs) Stalled out right now. Yeah, it's stalled out right now. But, you know, if you look back like 30 years, you know, it's improved Mm -hmm. quite a bit, driven by the federal corporate average fuel economy cafe standard. And, you know, I suppose some degree of just plain competition and just vehicle manufacturers trying to improve their product. But, yeah, it is sobering to realize that just growth in demand, just more vehicles on the road counteracts that and leaves you with sort of a net gain of not much. Right. And the climate science, you know, reminds us that it's the absolute amount that matters, right? It's not the trends or the percentages. It's really how many metric tons are entering the atmosphere. You keep mentioning this climate science, climate math thing. I I heard it was a Chinese (laughs) hoax. Yeah. Uh, Reasonable people disagree on that. Uh, So let's talk about some of the specific techniques and technologies that are imagined in these pathway studies. The ECOFIS study suggests using ammonia and hydrogen as energy storage media to be synthesized with wind and solar, which is kind of interesting. I mean, these are hardly new ideas, of course. They were certainly already being discussed when I started my work in energy over a decade ago. I think they haven't really caught on for a couple of reasons. One, because the round-trip energy losses can be pretty high, like over 50% if you're doing that. And because there just wasn't enough need for them, probably, to justify the expense of building these new infrastructure systems. So does that surprise you at all that synthesizing hydrogen and ammonia would figure as key pathways in their study? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. It is surprising, right? You look at it and you know that those efficiency penalties are high. You know you've got these unanswered infrastructure questions around hydrogen transport. And so it is curious to see that, but you do see it in a lot of studies, right? The Jim Williams paper we mentioned earlier, looking at the California pathway, has a lot of hydrogen production, the E3 models, the electrification futures study, the sort of preliminary work there shows a lot of electricity to fuels production, typically to hydrogen. So there's got to be an interesting story underneath why this keeps cropping up. And I think there are a couple features that help explain it. 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In early January, California regulators approved the first transportation electrification applications from the three large investor-owned utilities pursuant to the state's landmark climate change law, SB 350. The decision approves 15 pilot projects with combined budgets of $42 million and includes investments in electric buses and bus charging stations, residential charging stations, urban DC fast charging stations, electric cranes, tractors, and forklifts at the Port of Long Beach and the Port of San Diego, and electric tractors and ground support vehicles at San Diego International Airport, among other things. But these pilots are only the beginning of a larger program that will ultimately contemplate more than $1 billion in vehicle electrification projects across the state. Item 2. Thanks to a cold snap, Texas set a new record for winter power use at nearly 66 gigawatts on January 17th, beating the previous winter demand high of 63 gigawatts. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.